Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm glad you're tuned in. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. I hope you enjoyed that Mother's Day song by Taylor Swift. And as I think about mothers, I want to say thank you, Mom, for all you did raising me to know and love God. Thank you, Aaron, my beautiful wife, for being the greatest mother to our two beautiful girls that I could possibly imagine. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers in our audience. Anyway, before we get into today's show, which will be the second part of our interview with Dr. John Oswalt, I wanted to briefly discuss an article in this month's Scientific American, and on page 86 we find an article titled, Much Ado About Nothing, Science Closes In on Why There Is Something Instead of Nothing. And I can't get into this too much today because we have a lot on the show, but I had to discuss this. And sometime in the near future, I'm going to do a show all about nothing. It'll be the show about nothing. Because I feel like the atheists and the skeptics have a hard time understanding what nothing really is. Anyway, this article is written by Michael Shermer, founder and publisher of Skeptic Magazine. So if you're wondering about his bias, look no further. The problem with this again, is that he, along with all the skeptics, fail to truly understand the significance or meaning of nothing. Of course, we have to answer the question of where this universe came from. We've talked on this show about the cosmological argument, both in science and in philosophy. There are many different versions and philosophy of that argument. And of course, in science, Big Bang cosmology indicates that the universe had a beginning. Of course, atheists have to get out of this to prove that God does not exist. And they encounter a real problem because the first law of thermodynamics says that something cannot come from nothing. Aristotle said that nothing is what rocks dream about. And that is a funny way of putting it, but articulates the reality that nothing means nothing. Nothing does not mean something. So I've had skeptics tell me that the universe began from nothing more than dark energy, dark matter, and the cosmological constant. There are a few problems with that. One, the cosmological constant was what Einstein called the greatest mistake of his career. Two, there is no empirical evidence for either dark energy or dark matter. So even if they could explain the universe's creation or formation from those constituents, those still wouldn't be nothing. Those are still components. Back to Shermer's article, Shermer is building on Edward Tryon's vacuum energy fluctuation idea of the formation of the universe. Edward Tryon's famous quote that the universe is simply one of those things that happens from time to time should tell you all you need to know about his bias. Shermer acknowledges this vacuum energy field is not nothing. He says the nothing of the vacuum of space actually consists of subatomic space-time turbulence, which allows energy to briefly decay into particles and antiparticles, thereby producing something from nothing. Wait a minute. Those constituents aren't nothing. So there you have it, the laws of nature, vacuum energy fluctuations, and energy together in Shermer's pseudo-scientific mind equal nothing. All Shermer is really getting at is what Einstein and Planck told us in the early 1900s, that energy and matter are fundamentally equivalent. The tragedy is that the scientifically illiterate Scientific American reader may accidentally mistake Shermer's skeptic faith and obvious bias for science. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Oswalt for the second time in two weeks this morning. It'll be the second part of an interview that we began last week. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can get that interview if you happen to miss it at godsolutionshow.com. And Oswalt is the author of The Bible Among the Myths, a book that we discussed on this show a few weeks back, and we also discussed some of that with him last week on The God Solution. So I know you're going to enjoy this morning's interview with him as well. We'll be talking about a lot of different issues, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy what he has to say. Dr. Oswald is the professor of Old Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, and he has written numerous books. Some of those books include The Bible Among the Myths, Called to be Holy, Where Are You, God? We Live as Christ, and various commentaries on the book of Isaiah. Some of those, Ron Martin, my co-host here, has said are the finest on the book of Isaiah. You can find out more about Dr. Oswalt at asburyseminary.edu slash faculty slash Dr. John Oswalt. Again, that is asbury, A-S-B-U-R-Y, seminary.edu slash faculty slash dr john Oswalt, O-S-W-A-L-T. And the description of him listed on that website says this about him. Oswalt received a BA from Taylor University, a BD and THM from Asbury Seminary, and an MA and PhD from Brandeis University. His writings have appeared in biblical encyclopedias, scholarly journals, and popular religious periodicals. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Oswalt. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. You? I'm doing great. Ron Martin, my co-host who couldn't be on the show with us today, said to let you know that he has considered your commentaries on Isaiah as the finest, and he truly wishes he could have been here today. On that note, what would you say about some of those messianic prophecies in Isaiah and even in other books in the Old Testament? I've said to people over the years, if somebody said to you, I'm going to take away all your biblical books except one, you can keep one. Which one do you want? I've said, keep Isaiah, (laughs) because there's more New Testament in Isaiah than any other Old Testament book. And, of course, there's more Old Testament book. One of my questions for God, when by his grace I get there, is, is it just a coincidence that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah? and 66 books in the Bible, and 39 books in the Old Testament, and 39 chapters in the first part of Isaiah, and 27 in the second, and 27 books. Is that just a coincidence? I don't know. But at any rate, what we have in Isaiah is a complete biblical theology. The whole picture from beginning to end is there, including in chapter 65, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what Isaiah is basically saying is, we humans have gotten ourselves into a hopeless mess that's going to end up, like chapter 6, with a world that is burned down, burned to a crisp. But out of that world comes a holy seed, the very last statement in chapter 6. And that holy seed is, as becomes clear in chapter uh, 7 and 9 and 11 and 16, that holy seed is God's promised one, his Messiah. The hope of the world is in the Messiah. 
And so as you go through the book, you see in those first 39 chapters the trustworthiness of God, that he can be trusted. And when he is trusted, he will in his grace deliver us, not for anything we've done, not for anything we've deserved, not because we kept the law. He will deliver us by grace. And that's really where chapters 36 to 39 end. Hezekiah trusts God to deliver him from the Assyrians, and God does. But when Hezekiah gets a chance to testify to how God delivered him from illness to the Babylonians, he shows off his wealth. One of the great, sad, sad pictures in the Bible, Isaiah 39. What's that saying? That's saying Hezekiah is not the Savior of the world. If we look to this gracious Messiah who's going to deliver us from our own burned-over field of stumps, we don't look to an ordinary human being. Nevertheless, he's a human being. Hmm. So then in the next chapters, which are written by inspiration to the people in the exile, 150 years later, Isaiah says, now you may think, because you've gone into exile, that God has rejected you. He has not. He is still going to use you as his servants. And he's going to use those servants to show that the gods of this world are helpless. But that raises the question, how can God do that? Can he just ignore the sins of the people of Israel that took him into captivity? Well, he can't if he's a God of cause and effect. If he did that, then the whole world would fly apart. I could step off a tall building and go up instead of going down. So he can't ignore cause and effect. So what's he going to do? How can he use sinful people? How can he be gracious to sinful people? And the answer is in chapters 49 to 55, the servant. The one who will be for Israel what Israel could not be and thus enable them to be witnesses to the world of his grace. So it's interesting to me in my work on Isaiah to see all the ways in which scholars have tried to deny that chapter 52.13 to 53.12 refers to Jesus. It's amazing. And one of the evidences that they're wrong is none of them can agree with each other. If you've got 52 scholars in the room debating that chapter, you're going to have 52 opinions as to who this is talking about. I think there's no question but that Isaiah was privileged to see that the king, who's talked about in chapter 11, is the servant who's talked about, and this is a case where the chapter breaks in the wrong place. The content begins at 52.13 and runs through then the rest of chapter 53. That the person depicted there is the servant. This king is the servant. And this king then will make it possible for us. Chapters 54 and 55 are a great invitation where God clearly is inviting people in prospect 
to receive the grace of the Messiah and to uh, live in that grace. So Isaiah is ultimately about the Messiah's work in us for the sake of the world. Excellent. What about this suffering and dying concept of the Messiah in the Dead Sea Scroll and Stone, as it's been called? Does that kind of affirm some of our reading or interpretation of Isaiah 52 and 53? Definitely. We already know that the Jews considered chapter 53 to be about the Messiah. In the Aramaic paraphrase called the Targum, they call him the Messiah. But they can't quite bring themselves, that group, to say that the Messiah could suffer. But I think that anyone reading that passage, just at face value, is going to have to say, well, yes, he does suffer. So I think when you look at the Targum and you look at the Dead Sea Scroll, you get a little bit of insight into a struggle in the Jewish community about just how are we to read this? The Dead Sea work that is referred to is a testimony that there were people who were saying, you know what, I, I don't know how that could be, but we got to grant that possibility. And chapter 55, when it says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, I think is exactly on this point. He's trying to say to readers, hey, look, don't try to work all this out to your own intellectual satisfaction. Just accept the fact that this is the way it's got to be. Yeah, verses 8 and 9 are always convicting as I think about the Old Testament and the whole Bible, just realizing how God's thoughts are so much greater and his actions are so much greater than my own. What about the concept of the God in the Old Testament being a God of wrath? Yes, this is so common. And the problem is that, number one, the revelation comes through history. And for most of the world, the human experience has been one of violence, of murder, of bloodshed. God has stepped into that world. And so he's dealing with them on that basis. But this is where we cannot separate the Old and the New Testament. The Old and the New Testament really do a flip. What is a major theme in the Old Testament becomes a minor theme in the New Testament because the New Testament writers think you got it. And what is often a minor theme in the Old Testament becomes a major theme in the New. So the Old Testament talks about a God of absolute justice, a God of cause and effect. If there is any hope for us in the world, it is not because God fudges the books. Well, then there's no hope for us. He's a God of absolute justice. Ah, no. He's a God of grace. Put the New Testament alongside, and when you do that, you see grace running through the Old Testament. Abraham was delivered by grace. The Hebrew people were delivered by grace. It comes right on through. One other word on that. There is a word in the Old Testament. It is the word chesed, a rough H-E-S-E-D. So far, it's unknown in any other Semitic language. Now, that's unusual. Most Hebrew words have cognates in other Semitic language. Not this one, so far. But this one occurs more than 250 times, three-quarters of them referring to God. 
There is no one English word that can translate that thing. You really have to have a sentence to translate it. If you look at English translations and look at that particular word, you'll find eight or nine different ones. Mercy, love, grace, kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love, unfailing love. It goes on and on. The sentence would be, the passionate, undying devotion of a superior to an inferior, especially when it's undeserved. The passionate, undying devotion of a superior to an inferior, especially when it's undeserved. And what the Old Testament says is, that's our God. Ringing through the Psalms, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His hesed endures forever. That's not a God of wrath we're talking about. That's a God who has been kind to us over and over and over again. We say to the Hebrews, well, didn't your God get mad at you a lot? And they say, well, of course, he should have. That's not surprising. What's surprising is his unbelievable hesed. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM and KDUR.org online. You have time for two rapid fires, or should we <laughs> close it out? Yeah. Well, as you as you recognize, you can you can ask a rapid fire question. It may be difficult for me to give a rapid fire answer, but yeah, let's try. Okay, like I said, your your time is what I want to respect. Yeah. And obviously, every minute that I have with you on the phone is a pleasure for me and a joy. So thank you so much. Okay, my degree in college was in chemistry. My chemistry degree has given me an appreciation for what seems to be science in both the Old and New Testament. Now, I know that the people in ancient Israel and those in the New Testament didn't have a modern perspective of science as we do today. So when we read some of these statements that seem scientific, I know they weren't trying to elaborate on those as we would read maybe in a science textbook. However, the kind of the concept that I'm arriving at, and I want to ask what you think about this and get your perspective, could it be said that certain scientific-sounding statements in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 40:22 and the, the sphere of the earth, could that have been written in such a way that an ancient person that believed in a disc-shaped earth would go, oh, yeah, of course, the sphere of the earth, and in a way that a modern person, knowing the true geometry of the earth, could also see it as correct. To me, it seems like there's this aspect of divine revelation in these statements where both the ancients and the moderns could see similar characteristics and realize their authenticity. I don't know if I'm going oh, to I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think it is evident that the Holy Spirit spoke in terms that would be relevant and meaningful to those first hearers and readers, but also he put in them much more, not less than they would have understood, but more than they would have understood. And I think that's true in science. I think it's true in theology. You know, you find things in the Old Testament and you say, well, I wonder if they really understood the full implications of that. And I think the answer is no, they didn't. But God put it there in order that as we gained understanding and inspiration 
we would recognize that deeper truth. I've said to many people, one of the things that convinces me of the inspiration of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is a child who can read can get the basic points, but you can spend your life studying it and never get to the bottom. So, yes, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I think there's another factor, too. Because of their worldview, there is a purpose, there's a direction, there is one being who has made the world according to his own consistent character. I think the very way of looking at the world from a scientific point of view is imprinted there. It's no accident. The Greeks invented science basically on faith. They said there's got to be a universe. We don't know what it is, and in the end they gave up. They couldn't figure out what the one central principle was that then would make everything else in the universe consistent with everything else. So they gave up. The Mohammedans saved it because of their rigorous monotheism. Yes, <laughs> we know what the one thing is. But Islam lacks grace. And science ultimately has to have both absolute predictability and grace. And so it's not until the Muslims bring Greek science to Europe in the 1300s that science really begins to find its own place. And now, as the biblical worldview disappears, science is more and more in this strange position of saying, well, everything got here by chance, but in fact, the whole world is quite predictable when you understand the principles. When I look at statements in the Old Testament, like the expansion of the universe and the spherical shape of the earth and yeah. the entire yeah. universe unraveling like a garment, I can't help but see scientific realities, like in that last case, for example, the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah. I recognize those readily, and I know that those in ancient times wouldn't have said, oh, of course, the second law of thermodynamics, <laughs> but it would have been relevant no. to them in their context as well. Yeah. But, but that is that is I think going back all the way to your first question another evidence of the inspiration and reliability of the text. Wonderful. Okay, one last one, just because we don't want to avoid controversy here. <laughs> um, Genesis one. What is your perspective on Genesis one as an Old Testament scholar? <laughs> I believe that Genesis one is an accurate reflection of the way in which God created the world. In other words, this is my faith position. When by grace I get to heaven and I know how God made the world, I will say, oh yeah, that's exactly what Genesis says. <laughs> exactly. But, like so many other cases, if I try to use that, then to recreate exactly how God did it, there's a big, big chance I'm going to be wrong. Because God didn't give it to me, first of all, to tell me how he did it. He gave it to me, first of all, to tell me the meaning and nature of reality. Now, that's not going to be in conflict with what he actually did. So I think it's quite interesting that you begin with light. 
and you end up with humanity. Uh, I don't think that's accidental. And, and here's where I would disagree to some degree with John Walton in his book, where it seems to me that he simply says, well, this really doesn't have anything to do with how God did it. It's, it's a theological statement. Well, I think it's a theological statement, but it's a theological statement that is drawn from just how God did it. I've found some of Gerald Schroeder's comments on that subject particularly interesting. And I know he's not a Christian scholar, but as a Jewish astrophysicist, he's kind of put the two together, Genesis 1 and modern physics, and come up with some really interesting observations. But it's been a wonderful morning, and... Just so thank you. you. Uh, thank you for the privilege. Do you have any last comments for the audience listening this morning? The Bible is God's word written in human words. And that means that we've constantly got to be reading it through the original writer's eyes and at the same time looking for the voice of God as he speaks to us through it. Absolutely. Thank you so much once again for being on the Thank show you. this morning. Have a wonderful Bless afternoon. you and your work. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I hope you enjoyed the second interview with Dr. Oswald. You could get some of his books on Amazon. Go to Amazon and search for Oswald, O-S-W-A-L-T, and check out The Bible Among the Myths, called To Be Holy, Where Are You, God? We Live as Christ, and his various commentaries on the book of Isaiah. The Bible tells us that God loves you dearly, that you are not here on accident, that God created you for a purpose, and the foremost aspect of that purpose is to know him. The Bible says that every one of us are separated from him because of our own selfishness and sin, but that Jesus came and died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sin, to pay for our sins so that we could have an open friendship with God. The way that we experience that friendship with God begins by receiving him, the Bible says. And that literally means coming to him by faith and accepting his offer of forgiveness and salvation. You can do that simply right now by saying, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me and make me the kind of person you want me to be. Be my Savior and Lord. He says at that moment when you put your faith and trust in him, he literally comes into your life never to leave remaining there, forgiving you, guaranteeing you a place in his family and an eternity with him in heaven. I would encourage you to check out a local church this morning. You could check out Grace Church. They meet at 1440 Florida Road at 1045 a.m. Again, that's Grace Church, and they meet at 1440 Florida Road at 1045 a.m. If you get a chance to visit Grace Church, go ahead and tell Pastor Justin and Pastor Keith that we say hi. Get all of our previous shows at GodSolutionShow.com and please let us know what you think. We really appreciate your comments and questions and some of your comments and questions actually help us come up with themes for future shows. So if there's something that's been on your mind, go ahead and email us or send us a message and let us know what that is so we can talk about it on a future show. As we always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's our hope that you'd find him today. We're going to close out the show with one more Mother's Day song. And once again, I hope all you mothers in the audience will have a wonderful Mother's Day. Thanks so much for listening. 